0: Welcome to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. In this episode, we explore the historical and geopolitical context of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, as well as the role and actions of NATO. As we watch and read about Putin's brutal actions in Ukraine and how they're affecting the people who live there... Many of us find ourselves wondering, why is this happening at all? Discussing this with me today is Dr. Amir Weiner, Director of the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at Stanford University. Things seem to be changing moment to moment, but there is this consistent sort of bombardment and pushing forward of the Russians and the Ukrainians fleeing and asking for help. We're recording this on a Monday and it's going to air a few days later. I know that you are an expert in the historical context of the region. So can you talk a little bit about what's going on now in the context of the history of this region, the Bolshevik history, the Soviet history, the Russian history? The
1: current crisis goes back to the disintegration of the Soviet Union the way it fell apart, the disintegration of this huge empire into uh, 15 new states, and the creation of Soviet republics turning into sovereign uh, countries, and apparently the reluctance on the part of the Russian Federation, or at least part of the elite of the Russian Federation, to accept the legitimacy and sovereignty of certain countries, first and foremost, Ukraine. The Russian Federation recognized uh, the sovereignty of Ukraine in 1991, but inside the elite, and the the elite is not only the current administration uh, of uh, Vladimir Putin and his entourage, but also large swaths of the uh, liberal intelligentsia who do not see the Ukrainians as a separate entity, ethnically, culturally, and dream about the recreation of this mythical entity Ruski Mir, the uh, Russian world of uniting the Russian speaking uh, communities under the, uh, of course, the guidance, the supervision of the Russian Federation. Now, these places have been together uh, for most of their history, but not necessarily by mutual agreement. Basically, it was the domination hegemony of the uh, Russians and later the Russian Federation and from Putin's point of view, several things. One is uh, indeed something that he indicated and we tend to ignore it when he said it in 2005 in famous uh, speech about uh, the disintegration of the Soviet Union as the greatest uh, geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. What he added, and this is the sentence that was always uh, uh, dropped out in citation, is that the greatest tragedy is of millions of Russians stuck out uh, beyond the pales of the Russian uh, Federation, beyond their homeland. And that is something that is indeed keen, at least, of solving the, the problem. Second, the humiliation. The burning sense of humiliation, Putin's personally, but also large parts of the Russian elites, the way the Soviet Union collapsed, the sharp drop, the fall, from grace of a great superpower into basically a third world country and the alleged mistreatment at the hands of the um, West. So we have here the combination of all of these factors, the reluctance uh, to accept the sovereignty of Ukraine and Belarus, never forget Belarus in this mix. And of course, uh, the sense of humiliation, avenging the humiliation and restoring the great status of. great power uh, to Russia.
0: I'm thinking of uh, a potentially analogous situation after World War I, the Germans felt mistreated and kind of that led to the rise of Hitler in World War II. Do you find the situation to be analogous? You said alleged mistreatment. Do you feel that the West did mistreat Russia in the time when it was transitioning from the Soviet Union back to Russia?
1: The West is not clear of uh, not making mistakes, but certainly it doesn't bear responsibility for the current crisis. Let's think had NATO did not uh, expand into uh, in the East, uh, with, especially with Eastern Europe, the Baltic uh, states, what would have been now? What would have be now? They would have been there. And that is the question that we have to ask ourselves. Whether the West made promises uh, or not, historians still debate and dissecting every word that was said or not said or written and not written, et cetera. But I think it is certainly in the mandate of NATO that countries that qualify can join them. It's a, a defense alliance, defensive alliance. It is not offensive. And I think it did the right thing to absorb, to accept, Uh, All those former Soviet bloc who wanted to uh, join, including Soviet republics, like the the Baltic uh, states, they did the right thing. These are the uh, liberal democratic countries that uh, joined and had the right to join. And that was the purpose of uh, this alliance. Now, if we also accept uh, the Western blame, which, of course, I reject uh, here, we also have to ignore Russia. What does Russia want and what is the Russian tradition and uh, what does Russia looking uh, for in this uh, region? And this is an imperial entity, whether we like it or not, that uh, seeks to have its own either empire or zone of influence. I believe it's much more of a zone of influence, creating a belt of uh, countries that are basically bereft of genuine sovereignty, no uh, national security uh, in their own hands, but is subjected to the um, interest of the Russian uh, Federation. Whether they want to recreate the Soviet Union, that's another matter. I don't think so, but certainly something on the mode of uh, the former Soviet uh, bloc, Poland, Hungary, Romania, uh, Bulgaria, who had similar regimes, no uh, foreign policy of their own, But uh, certainly we cannot ignore what Russia wants and what is the Russian tradition in this region.
0: You brought up earlier the term mythical entity when thinking about how certain Russian elites are viewing their presumed mandate to go into Ukraine.
1: Mythical entity in the sense that, uh, according to them, every person who speaks Russian, uh, Mm -hmm. and uh, so many in Ukraine speak Russian. Most of my friends in uh, Ukraine uh, speak Russian at home. That doesn't turn them into Russians. That doesn't mean that uh, they want to live under Russian rule and Russian government. Now, they're certainly russified by culture. They don't see any contradiction uh, with it. They are not Russians. They see themselves as very proud Ukrainians. And actually, the, the president of Ukraine's first language is Russian. And I don't think that anyone would accuse uh, Volodymyr Zelensky of being. Russian.
0: Of course, I want to dive into NATO. Poland and, and other countries got NATO membership. Did Ukraine just miss its window? Or what's been the resistance all along to bringing Ukraine into the NATO fold?
1: To join NATO, you need to uh, pass certain uh, hurdles, uh, certain qualifications, standards, etc. And Ukraine was not even close to okay. it. The idea was floated several years ago that Ukraine and Georgia uh, would be in line but they still have to uh, pass the test, so to speak. And it was in terms of a uh, practical joining of uh, NATO, this was so far in the future. So the Russian claim that this was about to happen is simply has no base in reality. Regrettably, we have no idea how this will end, what kind of Ukraine will survive or not survive this uh, crisis. And this is the sad part that we are talking about. A country the size of France with 42 million people that we do not even know if it will exist as a sovereign state when it is all over. Would it um, join NATO? Certainly they won't now, but uh, they might have uh, missed it not because of the uh, not qualifying, but because of the, the Russian demolition of uh, this country. It all depends how it will end up, what will happen in Russia. To the ill will is there. Before the invasion, year, two years ago, there was no majority for joining uh, NATO and the European Union, slight majority for the European Union. NATO was always a little bit uh, debatable uh, issue in Ukraine. Now, of course, the majority would love today to join both uh, places, but I won't be the one to predict if it's feasible uh, right now.
0: A lot of us in the U.S. are responding to that, the Russian demolition, the seeming brutality of the attacks. And I know that this happens other places in the world. And I wish we would also give our attention to those places. Um, But it has been excruciating to watch and feel helpless. You know, I mean, I'm not in government, I can't make those decisions. And I do know that there are reasons why we so far have chosen not to implement a no-fly. I mean, you know, there are real reasons that are valid. But it is excruciating to watch the demolition and feel so helpless. In your estimation and from your expertise, how should the West be responding at this moment? What would you like to see or what are you seeing that you think is is working?
1: What I'd like to see first and foremost from the West is to maintain its unity. That was one of the biggest uh, miscalculations of uh, Putin that the view of uh, the West is weak, especially after the uh, retreat from Afghanistan that the West is disunited, uh, almost disintegrating, uh, given the, the view of what is happening inside in domestic policy, whether it's Great Britain, the Brexit in the US, the Trump era, and the, the inability of this administration to pass domestic legislation. The West, from their point of view, looked in this array. What is, happening that we should be proud, at least so far, at least that the West proved to be on the right track, simply remembering uh, that it is the West, that it is the stronger component uh, here in the world order, but it has to keep its uh, unity. And this is quite a gigantic uh, task. The NATO is dozens of uh, countries, uh, not all of them with the same agenda. They have their own uh, domestic pressures. They have their own economic Need. So, first and foremost, the West must keep its uh, united ranks. Second, in terms of the sanctions, that goes hand in hand with the first point, they must keep them. It brings to play China, not to let China uh, join the fray, especially as a bypass of the economic uh, sanctions. So far, we don't have any reason to believe at this point that the Chinese uh, are going in this uh, direction. But The main point is very, very tough task of keeping all aligned, the unity, the sanctions uh, in play. There is, of course, the big uh, question uh, about the escalation. Should there be any incursion into NATO territory? I doubt it, but at the same time, this is war. They're getting closer to NATO borders. One mistake can be enough, and there is Article 5, of NATO that requires the Alliance to step in, in case uh, one of its members is attacked. Right. We have to be very careful uh, with this. In terms of uh, what we should do, continue to supply the Ukrainians so they can stand. Because if there is any hope for some kind of success, and I'm very skeptic about it, mm-hmm. is all three components. Keep the Ukrainians fighting and being uh, resolved and assertive as they've been keep the West united, and keep the sanctions all together. Very tough task, but if they do it, that might lead to maybe maybe some rethinking on Putin's side.
0: You're listening to News in Context. I'm Gina Baleria. We're talking with Dr. Amir Weiner, an expert on Soviet history and the interaction between totalitarian politics, ideology, nationality, and society.
1: All these three conditions, we must add one that we don't like to discuss, and that is offering an exit way uh, for uh, Putin. We don't know what it would be but uh, we cannot simply discard diplomacy. There is of course the tendency now where we are so angry just to watch a peaceful country that has done no wrong to anyone, especially not to Russia being destroyed because of some uh, calculations and fantasies of a tyrant. But we have to also to keep in mind that this is a nuclear power, have the responsibility To de-escalate, I admit that I don't know what is the exit uh, venue at this point, because it seems that uh, Putin climbed on such a high tree and he is being cornered. What will satisfy him? Another sliver of uh, Ukraine, some kind of uh, recognition uh, that in neutrality. At this point, he doesn't want to talk because he's winning the war on the ground. We have to keep this in mind, aside from the propaganda and the uh, war on the airwaves, that the Russians uh, are simply progressing and at certain point they will win if it continues like this. So he doesn't have any reason to negotiate while he's winning, even if his army performs very poorly, but it is progressing. So we will have to think for a way out because the stakes are too high. As a
0: layperson I'm grappling with, I don't want this tyrant to get anything out of this, but I know that there has to be diplomacy, but I don't want him to feel like he can just throw a tantrum and get what he wants. But then there's that that other piece. Putin is willing to bombard Chernobyl and, uh, you know, a nuclear power plant. So maybe he's not dropping a missile, but he is actively trying to destabilize a nuclear power plant. And so that makes me actually genuinely wonder what he's capable of. I mean, certainly rational people don't want to start a tit-for-tat nuclear war. But what exactly is this man capable of?
1: I don't think that he is insane. There's been a little bit of psychoanalyze put in by people who never met him, people who don't sit with him, people who don't speak Russian. I don't think that he behaves in any insane manner. I think that he miscalculates. And he's a gambler. And he's a bully. He's a bully. If we take a look at this, his modus operandi, it's very much like high school bullying. His mode has been always, here's what I'm going to do, what you can do to me. What can you do? And we see domestically and in foreign policy. Domestically, if we just think about the assassination, the murder, of one investigative journalist after another. but basically executions. If we take the um, um, murder of the head of the opposition, Boris Nemtsov, in 2015, several hundred yards from the Kremlin, can you imagine Nancy Pelosi, Mitch McConnell, or Kevin McCarthy being shot 200 yards from the White House and nobody's uh, paying the price for it? Nothing. So he's been doing it in your face. The poisoning of Navalny. It's an exclamation. Here's what I'm going to do. What are you going to do to me? You cannot do anything. In foreign policy, it started um, in the interventions in Ukraine, time after time when the elections were stolen. In Georgia, with the fake allegations again about genocide of uh, Russian speakings and slicing out two uh, regions from a sovereign uh, country. And in Crimea. That came later, and there was no actual response. Uh, very meager sanctions, which convince him that the West is not going to do anything. For me, actually, the the, the main thing with Putin, where the, the West should have uh, stepped in, was the uh, two uh, one assassination, one uh, attempt of assassination, the use of radioactive material in Great Britain, in London was simply staggering. If they wanted to kill them, they could have simply killed them. But with radioactive material, that was again in your face what you're going to do to me. This was sending a message and here we have to ask what did Great Britain do? It got angrier and angrier. And with the second attempt on the life of uh, Skripal and his daughter, they indeed retaliated. But with what? With expulsion of uh, security agents, uh, with some curtailment. But that galvanized him, and that simply sent the message. He can get away with this. My response would be so far, to say simply enough is enough, that this is not going to be tolerated anymore. I am comforted by the fact that their reaction so far has been very tough, very severe, and it hurts him. It will not stop the war in Ukraine. Sanctions do not stop war. But we can tighten the nose as much as uh, as possible and not step back.
0: Do you think the oligarchs who might be affected by these sanctions, or do you think they will be affected enough to put pressure on Putin? Putting
1: pressure on him can come only from either the internal uh, circle, which again is quite doubtful, or from the military. Basically, the people with the guns. The oligarchs cannot do anything. People on the street nothing. Uh, Russia, despite uh, all its mythologies, had maybe one revolution in its history in February 1917. The people will not revolt. Of course, there is a lot of consternation because people begin to hurt, but that will not come from there. If it will come, it will be a combination of security services and military who will do the uh, calculus and the calculation of cost benefits. This has gone too far. We are all hurting and this man is driving us. But we have to remind ourselves, this man has been in power for 22 years. He knows how to protect himself.
0: You brought up a lot of times, a lot of moments when something could have been done to check him. And now we're in this moment where, you know, Ukraine is just getting worse and worse and it almost feels like, it's inevitable that a response is going to have to happen. And maybe it's when that stray missile goes into Poland, right? If, when that stray missile goes into Poland, uh, that the response is going to happen. If there is that moment, you know, is there going to be again, like, oh, it was an accident, or is there going to be like, all right, now we have to respond? What do you think that might look like?
1: If it happens, uh, then it's a new ballgame. But we have to draw the line at a certain point. Where is the red line? And I think we made it very clear, at least in terms of the administrations. Uh, and I think so far has been handling it very well, in yeah. terms of its the diplomatic and not getting uh, dragged into uh, provocative statements. Yeah. But um, we have to be very careful with this. The West has to remember that it is the West that NATO is NATO, and it has the upper hand in military, economic, political power. It doesn't dawn on him yet. It has not. Uh, because we made clear that we are not entering Ukraine, that we will not fight in Ukraine. The moment we decided not to do that, we basically gave him uh, the military landscape. So we tried to simply derail him with the sanctions, uh, with isolation, which indeed is unprecedented. If you just think about it, he takes the Russian Federation 30 years back. And even more, because he takes it even to worse than the time of Perestroika and Glasnost. There, under Gorbachev, he's closing it, isolating it, and inflicts terrible damages on the Russian Federation and its population. Yeah. But I think that we simply have to draw the, the line. We, we are starting doing it very well. We just have to be persistent.
0: The lines of like. Chemical warfare, bombing, escape routes, or refugee route. Uh, I think to the the average person, it's like those seem like lines, but but they still are not, um, you know, in the NATO territory.
1: This is something that I am asking myself as well: where it is all heading? If uh, Kiev, which is a huge city, will be placed under siege, we had a precedent in Europe in Sarajevo, Bosnia, Herzegovina, in the 1990s, under siege demolished, uh, but, but it survived because NATO was uh, bombing the Serbs. Are we in that position? As long as we reject the idea and the practice of a no-fly zone uh, there, it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. But indeed, what will be the reaction if this great city will be placed uh, under siege yes. with starvation, with mass killing? What will be the reaction to chemical biological warfare in Europe. Now, we know that they used it already. They used it in um, Syria Syria. without even blinking. Are we going to tolerate it in Europe? These are the, the questions that the administration, especially, and the European have to cope with.
0: The Ukrainian people, there was, at least on Russia's side, this expectation everything would fall very quickly. And that hasn't happened. Did you expect the Ukrainians to be able to hold out? And what do you expect to see happen? If you
1: hear any experts telling you that he or she expected what will happen, you know that uh, this is expert LTD. We were taken by many surprises here because of all the miscalculations on all sides, especially Putin. Like all armies, his own military is fighting the last war. The last war for them was the occupation of Crimea with hardly any resistance. Certainly, he misread his intelligence forces and military misread the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians surprised us? Yes. First of all, they took uh, to heart the lessons of Crimea and the Donbass and started reshaping their uh, military, better equipment, better training, using uh, psychological and information warfare very skillfully. And this is part of war nowadays. The political leadership. Yes, it is a surprise. We did not expect much from Zelensky. A 43, 44-year-old uh, person with no uh, political experience, uh, better known uh, as a comedian and uh, actor. He rose to the occasion, very courageous person. One sentence that was etched in my uh, mind from him was when he was apparently offered a a way out uh, physically for him and his family. He said, I don't need the ride. I need weapons. And he stays there and he risks his life. And every person in Ukraine knows that. And this is leadership. This is inspiring uh, leadership by a person from whom we expected very little. Not because he's a bad person, but he has no experience in these things. And he was very unpopular before the war. He won 73% of the votes and then basically evaporated this goodwill. Mm -hmm. So this is a surprise. The Ukrainians themselves, this is, I would say, the least surprising for me. Crimea was a knife uh, for them. It was a knife in the heart, realizing that this motto of Russians will not kill Ukrainians, Ukrainians will not kill Russians, evaporated. It galvanized the Ukrainians. It helped bridging over so many fractions and the fragmentation of the the society, which I don't see as a weakness, actually. It's something uh, quite beautiful in a society that has so many components. They came together. One thing that Putin has already achieved is to making the Ukrainians much more cohesive and uh, together uh, than uh, ever before. Is
0: there anything else that you'd like to add that I haven't asked you that you feel it's important for people to know?
1: We are in a very crucial moment. The line of demarcation is a struggle between authoritarianism and liberal democracies, And this is something that we have to realize that indeed when we, we take a look, a global look at the map, Liberal democracy is not the majority. And there is the rise of authoritarianism, of course, in China, in Russia, nothing new. But there is no alliance yet between Russia and China, but the close uh, collaboration and the challenge to the West, and the West not as in a geographical sense, but it's also to Japan and South Korea and other uh, liberal democracies. This war in Ukraine demarcates the lines, and we have to remember it, that there's something much bigger here uh, at stake. If we say, this is not our war, this is fine as long as we get our economic interest, uh, safety, that's fine, but I don't think that uh, this goes this way because if he wins conclusively, there will be challenges all over, there will be challenges in Taiwan. We'll see how the U.S. and the West uh, will endure these uh, challenges. I'm not optimistic about uh, the future in the region because there are many nervous people in Georgia and Armenia and in Moldova of uh, what will be the next uh, Russian move if yeah. this goes very smoothly. There are many other places that we should start uh, looking at. Uh, I had for this. So there is something bigger here.
0: We even flirted, we are flirting with authoritarianism here. I mean, it's not like it doesn't exist inside the US.
1: When we look also at the European Union, what troubles me is that the heart of Europe, right now, there is an authoritarian regime in Hungary of Viktor Orban, stealing elections and creating um, basically authoritarian regime. Poland, which is at the forefront against Russian aggression is flirting with authoritarianism over the last few years. We should realize that this is a moment of choice for the West between authoritarianism, accommodating authoritarianism, or simply drawing the line as an opportunity to start checking what is happening in their courtyard that it can no longer tolerate an authoritarian regime Inside the European Union and NATO, which are alliances that were created to preserve liberal de- democratic order, not to accommodate it. So I hope that it will be also a sort of house cleaning uh, because of this uh, crisis. Whether it will happen, I don't know. I think that there are some optimistic signs not to tolerate it anymore, not to accept it as oh well.
0: Thank you to my guest, Dr. Amir Viner, director of the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at Stanford University. Music in this episode includes Spring Fling by Track Tribe and The Heist by Silent Partner. In addition to hearing news in context every Friday at 8.30 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. on KSFP 102.5 in San Francisco, you can hear it on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, iHeartMedia, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Podbean, YouTube, and PRX. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at News in Context SF and on Instagram at News in Context. And you can find links to all of that at newsincontext.net. I'm Gina Valeria. Thank you for listening.